Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Jay, and it is my privilege to welcome you and invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 12. While you're doing that, two things. Number one, we are very passionate around here about children's ministry. In two weeks from today, we hope to be able to have a nursery, both ours, but we need more volunteers, and we need people to step up. So I'm going to just make a passionate plea. We really want to encourage you, if you're not involved, great place to serve would be in our children's ministry, and especially uh, even occasionally in our nursery. We really want to offer that as a service to young moms to be able to attend and for young families. So I want to strongly put that plug in. Number two, you heard Kelly Demakis up here and Tony share about community groups. Theory behind community groups is connection. This fall, we're starting another brand new ministry called D Groups. We keep using the phrase and don't define it. What's D? It's not for donuts. Although I think that'd be a great concept, Pastor Tim. I'd join a donut group in a second. Uh, but it stands for discipleship group. And the, a little bit of the difference, community groups... Uh, run around 10 to 16 people. They are mixed gender, usually couples and singles that gather together. They're designed to go over sermon-based questions, meet weekly, and the hope there is connection, getting in community with each other. And they work, they work extremely well for that. Uh, D groups, this new ministry, is going to be more like three to five people, same gender, and the goal is not so much connection, but depth. There's going to be Bible reading, scripture memory, there's going to be more of an in-depth focus on going deeper as a believer. And so we want to encourage you, Pastor Tim, Joan Wagner, our women's director, are both leading this endeavor. They have information, but I want to encourage you, if you're hungry, to go deeper. If you're hungry to be with a few people, same gender, to go deeper. I want to encourage you to look into our brand new D-group ministry. I think you will find it very encouraging, and I hope that God's going to use it very strategically for the health and depth of our body as we uh, move ahead. Revelation 12, we are in a four-part series, Angels and Demons. And the goal of the series, I announced last week, is to learn what the Bible has to say about the realm of spirits. There's a lot of misinformation floating around, and our goal is to know what Scripture says and does not say. This weekend, we begin by looking, well, last weekend, we started by looking at the reality of angels their existence, and also their activities. This weekend, we're going to flip the picture and look at the reality of demons and ask the question, are demons for real? And I'm going to break down our topic into three parts. One, the existence of demons. Two, the activity of demons. Three, the destiny of demons. So first of all, we're just going to dive right in. I hope you have a Bible available to you on your iPad or your phone or in paper because we're going to fly around and we have some very important things to look at. First of all, the existence of demons. Most cultures, you may not know this, have some kind of a belief in evil spirits. Not just Christian cultures, Muslim cultures, Buddhist cultures, Hindu cultures all have some kind of a belief in evil spirits. Uh, in fact, in Islam, they even have a third category for a creature called the jinn, which are neither, uh, they're not really angels, they're not really demons, they're they were told they're morally neutral. They can be good. They can be bad. They pester people. I remember in one Muslim country I was in, they, they, they closed their windows at dusk, to which I asked why, because it was hot. And they said, oh, because the jinn can come in at dusk, and we don't want them in here pestering us. 
Most Eastern religions, as I said, have some kind of a belief in evil spirits. And it's not uncommon, for example, in Buddhist countries to see spirit houses on top of poles filled with fruit, usually rotting fruit, but it's fruit that's been laid there as an offering to the spirits to keep them out of the neighborhood. (laughs) And we've seen these a lot in Buddhist neighborhoods. Bible teaches that demons are evil angels. They are evil spirits who serve their dark lord, Satan. One of the most graphic descriptions is found in Revelation chapter 12. That's why we're going to start there this morning. Verses 7 through verse 9. Revelation 12, last book of the Bible, verses 7 through verse 9, is one of the most graphic descriptions of Satan and his angels found in the Bible and exactly what these creatures are. I'm going to start at verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his demons fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. By this way, by the way, is the only place in the in the Bible where Satan is referred to as a dragon. He's not called the, 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 the association is not made in Genesis 3. We're just told a serpent. This is where we make the connection that the serpent is Satan. And it's made in in, in Revelation 12. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, which is a Hebrew word that means adversary, uh, accuser, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels, notice that, his angels with him. Now, some believe that, look at especially verse uh, 9, the dragon was hurled down the devil, Satan, and his angels to earth. Some believe, there's three options when this hurling took place, this expulsion. Some, believe, some people believe this was the original fall of Satan, as described in Isaiah chapter 14. We're going to look at that next weekend. Next weekend's sermon is called A Biography of Satan. Some people believe this is that original expulsion from heaven. Others believe this is Satan's defeat at the cross. And I think that that's probably the most likely explanation. The other belief is that this is a future war in the end times. Whichever view you adopt about the when of this, here's what's undeniable. These verses tell us two very important things. One, demons serve Satan. That's very clear when you look at verse 7 through 9. Number two, demons are doomed. That's undeniable. Whatever view you take about the timing of this. Bible is very clear. These creatures are every bit as real as you and I. They are very real. They are invisible. They are malignant. They are wicked and they are evil. And um, a couple years ago, Becky and I had the privilege to visit several countries in South America. And one of the things I noted in my journal on that visit was how many leaders, Christian leaders, we were able to talk a number of missionaries, pastors, pastors on the ground there. I remember one pastor, particularly in Brazil, who told us he regularly dealt with demon possession. He worked heavily among tribal peoples in the Amazon. But I remember in just a period of a couple weeks, how many different leaders told us again and again and again how often they deal with demonic spirits and exorcisms of some form. That leads to the very famous quote. Some of you know it, some of you don't. But C.S. Lewis, if you've never read Screwtape Letters, you should. You read a couple times. It's a fictional dialogue between a senior demon and a junior demon. C.S. Lewis taught at Oxford 
for 30 years, and then he taught at Cambridge. In Screwtape Letters, in the preface of that book, talking, he calls them the devils, but he means the demons. He has this very famous quote about the reality of demons. And you may have heard it, doesn't matter, it's worth repeating. Here it is. From his preface, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall about the devils, demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other, the other extreme, is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Very astute observation. So the existence of demons is undeniable when you go to the Bible. And that's why I had Pastor Doug this morning read that very compelling passage from the book of Mark. Secondly, this morning, this is going to be the meat of our message today. The activity of demons. I'm going to look at five things according to the Bible. I'm sure there's more than this. But these are at least five that are very explicit in the New Testament and even the Old Testament on what demons do. And there are, they're not in any particular order. Number one. Demons teach false doctrines and distort the scriptures. And for this, I want to turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy in your New Testament, chapter 4. Timothy was a young pastor in what is today Western Turkey. We have two letters that Paul wrote to him, 1 Timothy, and then 2 Timothy is probably the last letter Paul wrote. It's kind of his last will and testament. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, the first two verses, we have a very explicit statement that demons, deceiving spirits, teach. I think the King James calls this doctrine of demons, things taught by demons, that they have a healthy interest, unhealthy from our perspective, of promoting false agendas, false ideas, deceptive ideas upon the human race. And Paul is very clear about this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 Verses 1 and 2. Interesting, the first verse mentions both the Holy Spirit and deceiving spirits in one verse. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, in the plural, and, here's our phrase, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through Hypocritical liars, I'm going to come back to that phrase, whose conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. All right, I'm going to ask two questions based on these two verses. A who question and a what question. Ready? First of all, the who question. Who is teaching these deceptions? And the answer is, they're being promoted by evil spirits, but they're not taught directly by evil spirits. In other words, the evil spirits aren't out with a megaphone or at a, with a microphone like I am. What are they doing? How are they doing this? Well, notice it's coming through human beings. Verse 2, such teachings, how do they come? Through hypocritical liars, human beings. So Paul's point, as you look at verse 2, is that human teachers, any human being, who is contradicting God's word is under the influence of a deceiving spirit. Bottom line. So let me give you some examples. This would include pastors who undermine God's word 
in their preaching in pulpits. And that goes on far too often. This would include school teachers who promote radical theories that undermine what God has said and directly contradict what God has said. This would include political leaders, talk show hosts, who push extremely ungodly agendas and even mock the Bible. This would include Christian authors who use verbal manipulation. I was looking at one this week who was in the evangelical camp and has been migrating for the last 15, 20 years. And in his latest book, entitled Inspired Errors, and it's in the subtitle, or in fact, the little description underneath is how we can trust God's word even more by embracing its inconsistencies, inaccuracies, and contradictions. That's a doctrine of a demon. That man has been sold out to the dark side. And this would also include friends, colleagues, friends at school who are trying to encourage us to do ungodly things and disobey God's standard. That's, that's the who question. The who question. Who's doing this? This is human beings under the influence of deceiving spirits. That brings us to a second question based on these two verses. What are some of the most common doctrines of demons being promoted these days? Well, I'm sure there's come up with quite a list. I spent time this week just doodling as I was thinking and going over this. What are some of the most common doctrines of demons? Things taught by, that's the phrase, things taught by demons. The short answer, before I give you specifics, any teaching, any agenda that directly contradicts the word of God. That's simple. Even a Christian can promote stuff that's blatantly wrong but let me give you a few of the most common today that we are obviously seeing in our culture at this moment. Things like, it's okay to have sex before marriage if you really love somebody. An idea that is at direct odds with what God has said in the Bible has direct consequences and God says is wrong, is wrong. Or the idea that the Bible is not trustworthy, that it's inspiring but not inspired. Or the idea that biological evolution is somehow compatible with the Bible and can be reconciled with Genesis, an idea from the pit of hell. Or there is no such thing as absolute truth. And when that's defined, a lot of people blanch. And they, what do you mean absolute truth? Truth that applies to all generations and all cultures. And a lot of people's, oh, no, that, that can't be true. The Bible is very clear that's true. There are a lot of doctrines of demons floating around in our culture. Here's a big one. That a baby in a mother's womb is not a real human being. It's one of the most pernicious and evil doctrines of demons today around. That gender is fluid, flexible, and can be changed. I had someone in my office recently who doesn't attend here telling me that they're gender nonconforming. I said, exactly meaning what? Gender is baloney. Gender is baloney. Another doctrine of demons. It's okay to abandon my marriage if I'm unhappy, if I'm unfulfilled, if I'm unsatisfied. It's not that big a deal. Or that God approves same-sex romantic relationships, an idea directly at odds with what God has said. Or that God will grade on a curve someday in the, uh, in the final judgment. As long as I'm a decent person, as long as I'm ahead on the moral curve of most human beings, I'll be fine in the final judgment. Or here's a big one that's coming out among a lot of religious programming. God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy. 
and that he promises health and wealth. I could go on and on and on and on. You see the point. Doctrines of demons, things taught by hypocritical liars are everywhere. Here is the great danger with all of that. Young people, especially while you hear this, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. They're not just neutral things. They take you somewhere emotionally, physically, psychologically. Ideas lead you somewhere. And if you buy into false ideas, if you buy into the idea that I don't need, I don't need to get involved in a church, not that big a deal if I attend regularly, not that big a deal if I have my family involved in a church and they're sitting under the preaching of the word of God, that leads places, and there's going to be tremendous consequences for you, your children, and your grandchildren. Ideas are not neutral. They lead somewhere. They go downstream. So demons teach false doctrine, and they do it through human beings all the time. Number two, demons can dominate and even possess people. We read one account this morning. I want to go to another account, Matthew chapter 8. We're just going to look at a couple verses. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 32. Matthew 28. The Bible, by the way, doesn't use the phrase demon possession. That's a phrase that never shows up in the Bible. It uses the phrase demonized, or in Mark chapter 3, uh, someone with an unclean spirit. This speaks of a man who was demonized. And there's no indication that this can take place with someone who is truly regenerate and born again. But demons can dominate and even possess people. Whatever phrase you want to use. Pastor Doug read one example this morning. Here's another one from Matthew 8. I'm just going to read verses 28 down to verse 32. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and met him. Notice how they're described. They were so violent, no one could pass that way. What do you want with this son of God? They shouted. They knew exactly who he was immediately. And then notice this. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know what's going to happen to them one day. We'll come back to that in a little while. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And notice what the pigs did. They killed themselves. Satan and his demons have a strong interest in suicide and in death. And in killing things. And killing people and even animals. We're going to look at that more next week in next week's sermon. So, demons teach false doctrine and distort the scriptures. Number two, demons can dominate and possess people. Numerous examples. Number three, demons can in inflict emotional psychological and physical distress on people. Now, I'm not saying that every psychological, emotional problem goes back to demons. But we live in a culture where our default is what? The therapeutic answer. The therapeutic, even Christians. It's just automatically the therapeutic answer. Where it's very clear in the Bible, some of this is actually caused and promoted by demons. For example, in Matthew 9, there's a man unable to speak because he has a demon. In Matthew 12, a demon caused a man to be blind. Interesting. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 12 to 24. This is an interesting one. 
Matthew 12, verses 12, uh, no, sorry, verse 22, 24. They brought him a demonized man who was blind and mute. So here's a man who can't speak and he's blind and it's because of a demon. Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. All the people were astounded. Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, this, this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebul is a Greek form of the Hebrew word Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a pagan Philistine god described in 2 Kings chapter 1. In Matthew 17, there's a demon caused a boy to have seizures and suffer. Luke 13, he caused a woman to be crippled for 18 years. I want to go one last passage. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 13. Luke 13, 10 to 13. This is the account of a crippled woman being healed on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who was there had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. Everything indicates this was directly the result of a demon. She was bent over and could not straighten up. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward. He said to her, woman, you are set free from this infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up, and she praised God. And it's interesting that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was tormented by a messenger of Satan. We don't know if that meant physically, emotionally, psychologically, but clearly demons can inflict emotional, psychological, and physical distress, and we are way too quick to discount that. Number four, this one's interesting. Demons divert worship from the true God. And I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32 for this one. If you would go back to the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17. Demons and Satan in particular seek to deflect worship from the one true God. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. By the way, even though it's windy today in some of these conditions, this is easy compared to teaching outdoors in Israel. <laughs> I've uh, gone up against tractors, weed whackers, lawnmowers, buses, trains, planes, trains, and automobiles, and everything else. When you're outdoors teaching for a whole eight or nine days, it's amazing all the different things you encounter. Makes you realize that when Jesus and his apostles are preaching outdoors, it's not always an easy thing to do. Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 17. They made him jealous with their, talking about God, with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. Verse 17. They sacrifice to who? Demons. Now the NIV says false gods. The Hebrew behind that, almost every English translation translates demon. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Why? Because demons have a healthy interest in diverting worship from the one true and living God. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, it does say explicitly the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. In other words, hear this, many who think that they are sincerely worshiping God are in fact worshiping demons. Sincerity doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. 
You can be very sincere, according to Proverbs, and be sincerely wrong. There is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it leads in death. It means spiritual death. So just because someone is sincere doesn't mean they're worshiping the true and living God. It's very clear that some who think they're worshiping God, who are sincere in worshiping God, are not worshiping God. This would, this would be true of those in Buddhism or Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or anywhere where you have truth that has been significantly assaulted, maligned, twisted, and distorted, especially as to who Jesus is. Number five, and then we're going to land the plane. Demons seek to destroy God's people. While true Christians can never be possessed, in other words, demonized, consumed by a demon, Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to come back to in a moment, or summons, tells us that true Christians are in fact the target of dark demonic forces. Evil spirits who delight in, traffic in, confusion, chaos, deception, and oppression. And unfortunately, in the West, in America, we too easily dismiss that and default immediately to the therapeutic answer. There may be a therapeutic answer. There may be a chemical imbalance answer. But the one thing that we almost never consider over here, that our brothers and sisters in the global south and in the global east quickly default to is, is there a demon involved with this? Is there some kind of a spiritual issue here? Demons seek to destroy God's people incessantly. Now again, next week we're going to look at this a little more intensely because we're going to talk about the prince of demons, Satan. One being, often we talk about Satan as if he's omnipresent. Satan did this, Satan did that. I don't know if any of us have ever gone up against the dark Lord himself. He can only be in one place at one time, but it's very clear he is the commander and the dark lord of all the demons. All right, here's our closing. Oh, last thing. I've got one more point here. And I've already alluded to this. The destiny of demons. You had the demons being tossed out. And what did they say? Have you come to what? Torture us before our time. The clearest statement of this is in Matthew 25. Now, if you don't know your Bible, Matthew 25, it describes the judgment of the nations. What's, what does that mean? That's when all the nations, all the peoples who ever lived after they've been resurrected bodily from the dead will stand before the great throne of God. And it says in there, everyone will be divided into two groups, not Democrats and Republicans, but two groups, sheep and goats, sheep, those who know Christ, goats, those who do not. That's the metaphor used. And then it says, Jesus will look at those who are called sheep and he will say, come, take your inheritance with me. Wonderful words of encouragement. But then notice he'll turn to those on his left, the goats, the unsaved, and he will say these words. Depart from me, talking to the, those people, you who are cursed into the eternal fire and then this phrase, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is why those demons said to Jesus, have you come to torture us before our time? They know what's ahead. They know the Bible. 
they watched Jesus and they heard him preach. They've been around for a long time. And they know what's coming. And it's going to be brutal. That is why they are desperate. And that is why they are brutal. And that's why they seek to take no prisoners right now in this age. All right. Closing question. It has to be asked. And this applies to everybody here. Christian or not this morning. Some of you are not Christians. You don't know Christ. A lot of us do. But either way, this question applies to everybody. And here it is. How can I make sure I'm protected against demonic attack? You ever thought that? Ask that? I'm sure you have. How can I make sure that I am protected against demonic attack? And I want to give you three answers this morning. And these are in order on purpose. Number one, you must be born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit or there's no hope of protection. You see, many sit in churches who are captive to the devil. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. And no matter how hard they try to live the Christian life, even sitting in church week after week, month after month, they're trapped in what I would call willpower religion. They just keep falling back into the same sinful patterns, the same destructive behaviors, the same ungodly habits, and it's just an endless cycle. And the problem is they're trying to live the Christian life, they're trying to live the spiritual life apart from the power of the gospel. They're trying to live life apart from salvation. They're trying to live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, here's what the Bible says happens at the moment you're born again, the moment you're saved. It says a spiritual explosion happens inside you, an explosion of God's power. And the Bible says that's the only way I can live the Christian life. I can't live the Christian life on my own. And that's why you have people sitting in churches year in, year out, and nothing's different because they've never been born again. They've never been saved. The Bible says the only way I can hope to be protected from demonic attack and live the Christian life is if the Holy Spirit is living in me and Christ is living through me. And this only, you say, well, how, how do you do that? Two things. You have to own up to your sin and ask forgiveness, heartfelt remorse, not just admitting, but heartfelt remorse and determination to turn away. That's called repentance. And then you have to surrender and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the very moment anybody does that, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them. And then they have the power to stand against the schemes of the devil. And only then. God's power. You must be born again and have the Holy Spirit. Number two, how do you stand against demonic attack? True Christians need to know they have authority over demons. And what I mean by that is that's based on what happened at the cross. And I root that in Colossians 2.15. I love this verse. This is speaking of Jesus and what happened at the cross and resurrection. Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, overcoming them by the cross. I also think Revelation 12 in that great war is talking about what happened. Because the context there is what took place when Christ entered this planet. I think that is also describing the victory we have over demons. That doesn't mean we take them on without the authority of Christ. But we need to realize that. If you do know Jesus, if you have been born again, you have an authority that the non-Christian does not have over demons. And thirdly, and this is a biggie, 
If you're going to stand against demonic attack, Christians, and I'm talking to true Christians here, must think accurately about spiritual warfare. Unfortunately, a lot of what's written about spiritual warfare focuses on things like power encounters and exorcisms and commanding demons. And that may be involved, but that is not primarily what the Bible is talking about when it talks about spiritual warfare. When the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, hear this. I like what David Paulison teaches. David Paulison was a very gifted theologian and counselor who just died a couple years ago. Brilliant writer, brilliant Christian leader. He said, when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, he said, here's what it means. The normal Christian life of pursuing holiness. He said, that is spiritual warfare. The mom, the dad, the student, the kid who takes their Bible, who prays, who seeks God. And that's the emphasis of Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told that we have an enemy and that to resist him, we have to put on armor, metaphorically, but we have to put on the armor of the gospel, which is what? Well, when you look at Ephesians 6, it's a couple things. We have to stand in our identity in Christ. We have to stand on gospel promises. We have to be men and women and young people of prayer. And we have to be immersed in this book. Neglect that, there is no hope of it. And so I close with this. Never forget, King David was in less danger, in less danger on the battlefield in his armor. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 10. He was in less danger in 2 Samuel 10 on the battlefield in his armor than he was in 2 Samuel 11 when he was back at the palace without his armor. And that's when he caved in to sexual sin. That is why armor is so very important. Next Sunday, the biography of Satan. I think you'll find that most fascinating. God has a lot to say about his adversary, the devil. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we believe, based on testimony of scripture, that angels and demons surround us and perhaps are on this property this morning. Father, we ask that you would help us to think clearly about spiritual warfare and demons. You would help us protect us from inaccuracy. Help us to see our blind spots culturally as Western Christians who quickly discount this, who fall into the flaw of the excluded middle. Don't think about this middle realm of spirits. I pray for our leaders. I pray for our pastors and directors, our elders. Father, I even pray for our president and our leaders that they would not be taken advantage of by the devil and that those who are not saved, who are political leaders, you might bring some of them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how clear the Bible is. We thank you for the stories there that are true and that show us that demons and angels are very real. And Father, if those who are not yet born again here, I pray you would open their eyes today. They've been sitting here for months or years unsaved, that today would be the day they come to Christ and begin that protection, changing the following generations. We pray this in Jesus' mighty, global, omnipresent name. Amen.